0: Hi, folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. Obviously, we have done wall-to-wall coverage of Israel-Palestine since the Al-Asqa flood, uh, Hamas attacks, which we widely condemn. uh, And we will continue to do as much coverage as we can. But we have maintained a lot of our other output. There's a brand new shrapnel out there this week with Emma Shaw. There's a brand new Reboot Republic out there with economist Grace Blakely. There's also a conversation we had ourselves on the Echo Chamber with Hazel Chew of the Green Party. And there's a great podcast with Sinn Féin's health spokesperson, David Cullinan. All of those are available right now in the Patreon feed. So if you're a member... You don't need to listen to this. You can get your own consolidated feed with all of the podcasts that we're putting out even while we're covering Israel-Palestine. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise If you're not a member, click the link, join us. It's the only way we keep this show on the road. Yes, the podcast is free, but I love to think it has a value. In fact, I believe it has a value. There's thousands of people listening and we need a few of you just put your hands in your pocket and pay it forward. We have no ads. We have no sponsors. We, you're not going to hear me plugging initiatives by the government of Ireland or any of that nonsense that you'll hear on the Go Loud and ACAST networks. We don't do that. Right? We just won't because the simple fact is it wouldn't be the tortoise shack if we started to take in corporate interests. And for better or worse that is the hill I will die on. So we're 100% reliant on you to keep the show on the road. So one more time patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack i'm shutting up now enjoy the podcast
1: hello and welcome to the shrapnel podcast these these ones are going to be q a's and conversations between myself and my good friend gareth um and they're, they're not shrapnel but they're fragments of shrapnel they're, they're parts of it, they're, they're a chance for us to offload, chance for you guys to ask us questions and just discuss what's going on
2: around the country at the moment. How are you doing this morning, Gareth? Uh, not too bad, Sam. Um, I had a bit of enjoyment over the weekend. I was reading, or sorry, rather listening to the Alan Partridge audiobook, uh, Big Bacon, about his mission to rebuild or you know refurbish a old lighthouse, and it was an analogy for the the struggles in his life. And um, in chapter seven, I think it was, he talked about buying a racehorse and it was called Northern Ireland Protocol. So I'm just thinking there wouldn't be too many people, um, you know, from one part of the community here who would be backing that racehorse. Uh, you never know, mate.
1: The have backed, weirder names. Just, <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: I Anything mean, they have an allegiance to something, just take a, take a couple of quid on it. Yeah. Um, we're, we're going to do this because we we asked for a couple of questions one time before and we got, a, we got a few. So we decided this time we would do the same again. And fair play to our, our listeners. They they came through and we've got a pile or to get through it looks like.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll probably not, not do all of them today. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think the most important one, given given the anniversary tomorrow of, of the Shankill bomb, the 30th anniversary, um, is a question from Stephen O'Neill. And he asks... I'd be interested in how the Shankill Bomb was received or seen in the Protestant Unionist loyalist community, and I can't think of anyone better to answer that than you, Sam.
1: Um, <laughs> that's just one of these questions I've been looking at and looking at and going, how, how, how do you answer that question? Um, that was a day that changed a lot of lives, uh, and it changed our community. Now, don't get me wrong; there were there were attacks before that in the Mountain View, the Biardo. Uh, the Balmoral showrooms there have been attacks before but this one was different this one I I don't know this one was more uh, more violent Uh, it it just it just took everybody back a couple of steps so I was I was on the shankle that day Um, we we played it in a football league two o'clock kickoffs we were waiting on a lift and something happened now I didn't hear bang. It wasn't that way. It wasn't like the Hollywood movies. But something, something happened. It went. The noise was eerily different. To what the shankle should have been like at one o'clock on a, on a Saturday. Um, looked up the road a bit, and there was just dust. You know, it was just just a pile of dust. We, we went up um, to give a hand and. A few people there that I recognised were, were already on the scene as well. Um, and then the police arrived and the emergency services started to arrive after that. We, and some of us were ushered out of the way. We'll say they we had to go on our way. And for whatever reason, we thought the idea was we, we should go and play our football match. And off we went. I... That was 19 minutes of football there that I have no idea how he played, what the score was. The only thing I can remember because it plays back into it was a good friend of mine hurt his knee and he was driving that day. So I had to drive him back, but we went to the hospital um, to get his knee checked and the chaos in the hospital still at that point. Cause I'd seen what has happened, but it didn't, it didn't sort of filter down that the hospitals would be busy. That this has been bad. It was just it, it was it was like some scene from a movie was playing out, and we were in the middle of it, and it just didn't seem real. It didn't. The taste of the dust was still in my mouth after the football match. Believe it or not. Um, and then we went to the hospital, and then after, I uh, it was, was checked over and got a pair of crutches. He'd done damage to his ligaments we drove up into the Glencairn. When we got there, we had found out that um, one of the other guys on our team, our good friend, his brother and our mate had been killed in it. Um, So whilst we were all there on the scene, his brother was beneath the rubble um, as well as brother's partner and their child. That enormity hit because there was three from the one family taken. Um, We also looked at the other families up and down the road, and not. and time hasn't moved on for those people. We're we're going to go up and we're going to mark the thirtieth anniversary tomorrow on the Shankel. Time hasn't moved for a lot of them. It's it's hard to describe, but the Schenkel became the became very quiet after that for a while. I know, I know, senior Republicans had approached. Uh, senior loyalist community workers today and apologized for what had happened on the shankle um, and there was people on today, I can see on Twitter where, where's the inquiry and I would say yeah where's the inquiry let's go and ask for it, I, I'd be the first one to go with you, if you want to go and ask for that inquiry let's go and do this um, because there's questions to be asked it, it, yeah the, the IRA carried it out. somebody came on and said well, the, the, the IRA did it what's the inquest for um, is that is that enough, the IRA did it
2: well, I mean, there's questions, I suppose, a collusion, isn't there, or not knowledge um, yeah. of of the event, you know, that came to light a few years ago and uh, not being passed on, you know, yeah. the, you know that there might have been uh, an informer in the IRA and in, involved with the REC at the time. I don't know if there's any evidence for that, I'm not sure, but I know certainly in 2016 after the story came out, Martin McGuinness said that there should be an inquiry into it. So, I mean as you say, time hasn't moved on for those people. But when you get to a stage where you're in a sort of generation where one of the former commanders of the IRA and in, in Derry and somebody who's on the army council is asking about inquiries, you know, does it, does it help the families or does it, does it confuse the families further? Is it, is it harrowing that, that, you know, the death of their loved ones is resurrected in the framework of collusion or, does it help them get answers?
1: I I from my personal perspective on this one, I'd I'd like to know everything. I would like to know who supplied the explosives, who made that device, who gave the orders. Why are they not being chased and punished? Um uh, and if there was collusion, whose whose idea was it to play games with the lives in the shingle? Who thought that the IRA needed a final push than a negotiating table? Who who thought that they needed a little more atrocity to, to, to force the hand of the army council and who then decided that those nine people deserved to die for that I mean it's we're not talking about one person or two, two people here we're talking about nine uh, children it, who who sat in a room somewhere and thought to themselves let's sacrifice those those kids I mean we're we're watching the scenes at the minute from across the world of, of children uh, getting caught up in conflict that happened here we and we witnessed it, and we haven't asked the questions of why
2: yet. And thinking about the days and weeks after the shankle bomb, how, how did you feel? How did your? I'm interested in how your friendship circle felt as well, because, as we say, a lot of these atrocities that we hear about in the seventies would be the sort of Rubicon for for people to join the the organisations. So, what was the feeling like on the shankle among your generation? So, you would have been.
0: What I age was 19,
2: were you? 19. 19. So you were, I mean, basically you were prime fodder. Yeah. Yeah.
1: At that age, yeah. Um, I, I was in a position, luckily enough, where I had people who guided me, not away from it, but guided me to, to channel my anger. Because first of all, it wasn't anger. It, it, it was bewilderment. Um, We had a walk out of shorts Um, where I was working on the shankle with the workers of the shipyard as well in a mass show of solidarity, and that that helped a bit because it felt like we're not being left here on our own, I mean there's thousands of people here, my my, my colleagues from Short Brothers they're all here, they're all here because something happened here, they, they've acknowledged and they, it didn't matter what background they came from they all walked up um, so that helped a bit um, the community itself suffered a bit um, they grieved and then the anger started. I mean, it really did. And then after that, I mean, there was there was a series of gun attacks in Kennedy Way and um Steel, wasn't it? And it's it's like they don't even resonate. And that that's that's hard to say because other people's lives were torn apart, and we didn't need that. We didn't want that. That that didn't bring back those people, those name those nine lives for us. It didn't even the score. Um, but. I know where the anger came from for that. So my friend circle, I'm going to say we, we were good lads. We we were, we were lads that through our, through our younger years had all came through a, a, the boys' brigade first start, which kept us off the streets. We had developed into a, another football team. We had developed into a drinking circle and going out to the club. We kept ourselves right because we knew where this would go. So whilst we had lost one, Of our friends, and another friend had to sit there and sort of watch his life fall apart because of it. We got angry, but we didn't get angry enough to do anything silly, which I'm glad we didn't. But for a lot of people, I suppose, need to ask them to sit down in a quiet room somewhere and talk about it and see what they did. But I know, I know, if they did cross the Rubicon as such, I know I would know why. I would, I would, I understand why. I mean, we've heard Beno talking about it, and a few other people talking about mm-hmm. it. they different atrocities. Plum Smith says it was the the four step bombing. Um, I understand why people can do it in that moment, in that heat. Maybe in the cold light of day, when they've had time to reflect and they realize what they have done. Because you know yourself. Once you are in, you are in. Um, they they can then sort of be more rational. But at that moment, the emotion, the anger. And it's not anger like a furious anger, like you lash out and throw things. It's not that kind of anger. It it's a slow simmering burning anger. It's a, it's it's you're constantly on edge and waiting for something to happen. And 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 when it doesn't happen, you're wondering, well, should you make it happen? That that's the kind of that's the kind of mentality that we had. Um and we didn't make it happen. We we, we moved in a different way. And I'm glad we did go that way. Um I end up in politics and community politics which was the way to go forward because it it was a way to repair our community I still don't think we, we've we've dealt with a lot of it um and I think tomorrow at the service is going to be extremely tough for a lot of people and um, there was a there was there was a piece brought up yesterday about um is, is it worthwhile reliving all this or should we let let it go I don't know if you can let it go or not mm.
2: I think it's really interesting when you say about, you know, channeling your energies into uh, politics and community politics and community activism at that time, because obviously in 1993, the PUP were beginning to develop, you know, the political dialogue and sort of moving toward that framework. And in recent weeks and months, and probably the the overarching narrative is you know, about David Irvine doing the heavy lifting and David Irvine this and David Irvine that. And that's that's great and it's important. But I know when I was talking to Billy Hutchinson for uh, My Life and Loyalism, he talked about that day when the Shankill bombing happened and he bumped into like a very old friend of his, Trevor King. Mm. He was obviously, you know, a commander in the UVF at that time and very still very militant. And Billy describes the argument that he had with Trevor, which was... You can't let this derail the political project. You can't react. You can't. But he also said just exactly what you're saying there. He understood why Trevor King wanted to react, why the warhead came on again, and why the instinct was to lash out. And I suppose yeah. for, for me, one of the things about the shankle Bomb and that period because it comes so close to the ceasefire period that we all celebrate. I mean, in March 1993, David McKittrick did a report for The Independent and he wrote that one opinion poll carried out earlier this month by a Protestant Belfast newspaper on the admittedly unscientific basis of telephone polling came up with the alarming result that 42% of Protestants supported Loyalist paramilitaries. I'm wondering, now, did you get the sense in the early months of 1993 that there was a large, you know, groundswell of support for the Protestant paramilitaries in the Shankle?
1: I I would probably say it was 42% for quite some time. I don't think mm-hmm. it, it grew that year. You, know, I, I know what people will think. They'll be horrified when they think about community support and paramilitary groups within their their, their community. And people will lash out and say, oh, the, the Evans over there, they support the Provis. But a lot of these guys came from our community and, and they, they did things... Join organisations because they they felt they had to, or, or, or they reacted on a, on an incident like this, or various reasons. I mean, it, it, there was a report this week um, saying that the, the UVF had more recruits now than ever. I would love to see the HR department reporting that because I don't know how they're getting the figures. But
2: well, I mean, um, that was directly contradicted by an anecdotal uh, story that I was told by somebody who was close to the UVF in East Belfast in nineteen ninety when, you know, 500 people came out onto the streets to attack the UDA. And, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I mean, I don't want to get too much into the nitty gritty there, but sometimes when people are told they're experts, when people proclaim that they're experts and people believe that they're experts and they get access to audiences that like you and me would never get access to. And that's not sour grapes. That's just a yeah. fact. It's it's ridiculous what, what passes as expertise these days. Yeah. Anyway. I, I- I don't know. I don't know why that information was fed out there, but I, I, I mean, I
1: probably it does ebb and flow. But I'd I reckon that the, the numbers of part the reason in the organisations has always been steady enough. I, there's always been an atrocity or a, a recruitment drive, as they would say it. The coming through people reacting. I mean, I I heard stories of guys who who were annoyed after the Canary Wharf bomb went off in London. That's the end of the ceasefire. That we need to go and do something. And I, was, I thought is that the hill? Is that the hill you're going to die on? I mean, Canary Wharf, I mean, of all the attacks that there's been and all the things that go on within a three-mile radius of our doors, Canary Wharf is the one that's going to push you over the edge. You know, it's like, think about this. <laughs> things things happen around round about us that should make you extremely angry. Um, but the one you're picking is the, is the Canary Wharf bombing. So, yeah, getting, getting back to the shankle and getting back to the recruitment. I think during the 90s, I think I think those figures are, are what they're looking at there is because things are a bit more overt. In the nineties we, we had we went through a period there in the early nineties, um with a lot of tit for tat and resurgence of of these groups. It's not that it died off in the eighties, but it just wasn't in your face. In the nineties was totally different. The murals were on the wall a lot more. It was a lot more militaristic, it was a lot more aggressive. Um the atmosphere was just there. And I think if we look at the figures, um, the early 90s were quite bloody. Um, and lead, even leading up to the Schenkel bombing, I, I believe, just scanning back in the old grey matter here, I, I think the UVF and the UDA were both extremely active leading in the weeks leading up to it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, that's that's one of the contexts, given that it's the 30th anniversary of the... the um, the event, it's its uncomfortable to talk about that, but I suppose people will point to that, and it's a valid, you know, thing that people will talk about, that there was a context to this. It doesn't make it legitimate to no. t- take the lives of people on the shankle, but there was a context surrounding it, and, you know, it was a very violent time. Um, now, the one thing in that context, I think, it always strikes me, and, and not a lot of people talk about it, but you're talking about the motivations for... Young men joining paramilitary organisations, and you know, in in recent years, there was a memorial um to Thomas Begley, where hmm. you know there was talk of him being a brave Oglach, you know, a brave volunteer of the the Irish Republican Army. But for me, I don't know anything f- more about Thomas Begley than what I've read in the media, what I've heard um, is his former um comrades or colleagues say about him, but the thing that always strikes me is um, the story about the journalist um, who visited the Begley home in the aftermath of, of the Schenkel bombing. Hmm. I'll just read from Lost Lives here. It says, visiting the Begley home, Sunday Tribune reporter Brenda Parr found in the room a homemade tape recording of him playing the drums and flute with the Carrick Hill Martyrs Band. And resting close by, the only book in the room, a volume so handled and dog-eared that you must bend the paperback cover in the shape to read the title. This was the book, The Shankle Butchers. Thomas Begley's father said he'd been reading that over and over. And to me, that strikes me as tragic because it suggests to me somewhere in Thomas Begley's mind, he was reacting against something that happened when he was a child. And, you know, it, it it's the... Uh, Sort of pathetic nature of ethnic conflict that a guy who was born in 1970 was reacting um, against what he perceived to be an injustice against his community, against people who were arrested when he was seven, and people mm-hmm. who weren't even born when when those when those people were arrested ended up dying because of this sort of dogma, maybe. And I, I'm not just saying it's it's Bagley; I'm saying across the sectarian divide, this happens where people get so drilled into their mind that this is what the other communities like dehumanize them. And then we can go in and it makes it easier to attack them. Yeah. And that, that to me, you know, in, in his room, his only reference points were a tape of a Republican band that he played in and the Shankle butchers. And that was his, you know, cultural framework as it were. And it's sad yeah. for a guy of the age of 23, a young, a young lad at that time in the early nineties to be so narrow in his, his outlook.
1: And uh, that
2: was it. I mean, social media hadn't really taken off at, the, at all at that point,
1: you know. So, w- what what we had to feed all we went and found their and if that's that's what he had to inspire him. We'll call it. Um, then you see why. But I, I mean, on the other side, I I would say the same was happening on the Shankle. There'd be young lads there who were reading books given to them, um, and being in flute bands or or other organisations and becoming. Um, becoming militant for the wrong reasons I mean it, there was a lot of guys who I spoke to uh, at that time as you said the PUP were just starting to formulate through what they were doing who were talking to young guys and telling them not to get militant because they did they had the t-shirt and this is what happens to you when you do get militant where does it get us all you're doing is going to cause more heartache for everybody um, this is what we need to do politics is the way forward and that was a saving grace Um but it doesn't really take away from from what those young lads are sitting in in their homes, and this is what they're getting fed. And I don't mean getting fed as in somebody's forcing it down their necks, but it's mm-hmm. it's what they have access to, and it's then what they imbibe, and it's what they they then produce out of themselves. Um, they build up a hatred and and a and a pressure. But I think we need to look at why why they do that. I mean, have they no other options available to them? I mean, we have to look at working class areas. I mean, we will talk. Endlessly about mental health issues, me and you, and we all know that young, what young lads are like when they have hope removed from their lives, but when they when they get churned out of school without the qualifications they they're, they're going to need, and with absolutely no outlook in life. So, some people will find refuge in in a bottle. Other people will find it in the needle, and some people will then go, go and do things like this. You know, it's um, there is hatred there. Um, the, those those two lads who carried that device into Brazil's fish shop that day I wouldn't say that they were groomed but they certainly were fed a diet of hatred Um, and they we, we had experience of those individuals before that um, and the hatred was there already there and I'm going back over three years before that for, through 1990 I was 16 I had the pleasure of bumping into one of those, those young men and at that point I had never met anybody as more sectarian or bitter as he was. And that was his sixteenth. So his life was on a trajectory at that point and nobody intervened to take him off it.
2: Yeah, there's no safety valve.
1: No. And again, we need to be there looking at the community and saying, Well, how do we help our how do we help our young men stay away from this? How do how do we how do we not create a monster who's gonna take nine lives? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, it's quite brutal.
2: As you say that, I mean, the, the thing, you know, you say about creating a monster there, but ultimately these aren't monsters, you know, you know, you're creating the concept of a monster, Mm -hmm. but, but like the person didn't, you know, come out fully formed as a monster or, or, or sectarian. And I've had this when I've talked to people on the loyalist side as well about their experiences, it's conditions, it's society, it's a lack of hope, it's different um, events that they've experienced. It yep. all builds up. It's a tapestry that builds up to create this person who then goes out to do that act. But if you rewind it and take away all those pieces again, you still have a fundamentally innocent human being who could have done something else with their life. Yeah. So it's that's the tragedy. And as you say, particularly when we're talking about mental health and young men, and that's one of the worries I think we had a couple of years ago when... Things were kicking off around the protocol and, you know, you saw young lads getting involved in rioting and it was how can you channel the energies into political activism, community activism, rather than using the fist or the bottle to attack each other. But it's one of those things. I think we're in a better place than we were 30 years ago. But for the people who were directly affected by it, as you say, time inevitably stands still. Yeah. And it's every year this comes around, Meaning my own kids know that
1: at this time of year what happens. Um I go quiet. And I retract back into myself a bit. Um and and I become more focused on home. No matter where I'm living, I become more focused on home because it takes me back there. So again, have I passed trauma on to them? Is this something that they're going to observe every year that they they become quieter because I would have become quieter? I mean, are we passing that that trauma down? Um. So I have to be very careful how I do it, but yeah, it's we are in a better place because nobody's getting blow up in the Shankle. But then, if we go back to the Shankle, how how good is the place at the moment? How healthy is it? So, but we'll we'll tackle those issues after after tomorrow. We need to get tomorrow out of the way first.
2: We need to do our best. Well, all our sympathies with the families and yeah. people who'll be remembering the event tomorrow and just like to put that on the record for from us at Shrapnel here and people who are, you know, commemorating and remembering lost lives everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Well, following on from that, we've got a question from Christopher Owens and he asks, with the recent success of the man who swallowed a dictionary it seems there's a genuine desire to explore and engage with our recent past. However, with the past also being reduced to meme-like status, for example, the numerous IRA TikToks and arguments over songs, it sometimes feels like there are two separate paths and the two will never meet. Can they be reconciled?
1: Um, Suppose you're looking at, if you don't know the past, you're, you're doomed to repeat it. But on the other hand, if we keep breaking up the past, can we ever actually truly move forward away from it? So it, I, I can see it's a very it's a very intelligent question.
2: I can see where he's coming from. Well, if, um, I mean, if I can throw my top and sort in, yeah, we've just spent twenty five minutes listening to you talk about the experience of the shankle bomb, yeah. or the experience of the shankle bomb, the profound effect it had on you and your friends, and while you know you weren't directly physically injured, mm-hmm. you lost a friend um you also were from that community which was deeply scarred which is still deeply scarred and we can talk about that event in terms of we're giving it the gravitas that it deserves we're talking about it um coherently we're trying to look at the sort of motivating factors for the perpetrators we're trying to talk about the mental health effects on people like yourself we're trying to talk about the desire and thirst for justice from um, from the families, so I think that that's where we need to get in tandem with stuff like David Irvine play and the other work being created by people like Bino and Lawrence McEown and other people who've been been there and had the T shirt. Mm-hmm. So when you do see these sort of discussions and debates reduced to a meme or something lighthearted, um, I think that's the essence of what Christopher's maybe asking. Yeah, um, is there? Always going to be people like us trying to talk about these things seriously and, and trying to move things forward? And is there always going to be that sort of other strand of people thinking it's it was all a good laugh and it was like a war film and you know we can just sort of disnify it? And I'm not I'm not I'm not specifically talking about Republicans here. I think loyalists are as guilty of that as well, you know, in, in some circles. So how do we sort of move the debate forward, I suppose? I suppose the
1: conversations we have, um, and others others like us. Where we actually talk about the facts of of the matter and the the real human effect of the, of whatever the issue is, I think I think some of these TikToks and streams are is the reason why we're getting the the younger generation sort of not. I don't want to go. I don't want to go down the road of uh, the of the because it's not like that. What I'm what i you've got a younger generation who are totally detached from the troubles, but are somehow celebrating it. Um, and it's because that we have diluted what actually came before. We, we have diluted the horror uh, and the inhumanity and the terror because you, you grew up in North Belfast too, mate. You, you know what the atmosphere was like. Sometimes, I mean, when there was a, a particular campaign on or tit for that's going on, it was,
2: it was the pressure. You could feel it in the air. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've said before, luckily I was shielded from a lot of it where I grew up, but you could never escape the sort of mood music, the sort of, you could always taste something in the air and, you know, you knew it wasn't normal when you lived, you know, in an area where, say, a judge had his house evacuated and uh you know johnny five had to go into the house to dismantle a bomb or a a, a device whatever uh coming back from you know holidays um it was normal for the front windows of our house to be blown in because the lansdowne hotel had been blown up again and yeah and seeing all the different you know sort of murals and you know just just the, the the atmosphere was was always very fraught even if you weren't I was privileged not to be directly affected by it, but you couldn't escape it. And I think, you know, that obviously has an effect on the way you live your life. So, you know, for people who haven't experienced that, I mean, do, do, do we go hard on them? Do we challenge them? Or I suppose what we're trying to do is educate people about, you know, the realities yeah. of the past. And the one thing I'd always point to when, when with, you know, when we see young people, you know, sort of whether it be people doing IRA um, things on TikTok, and or young people celebrating loyalist organisations that you know called ceasefires or ostensibly called ceasefires before they were even born. Well, it comes back to something I've talked about in the pod, and you know, I I think what what people need in Northern Ireland is a short, sharp shock when when it comes to these sort of things, and I, I'd, I'd also extend this to our friends in the South who who sort of, you know, talk about the Wolf Tones being, you know, a sort of protest against the inability of young people to get on the housing ladder and things like that when the you up the rah. Because ultimately at the end of the day, when you whittle it all down, whether it be the IRA or the UVF or the EDA or the INLA or the British Army or the RUC, these organizations, these institutions <clears throat> and I'm and I'm carefully including all of them, including the state organizations there, because I know there's a narrative out there where people will feel that they've been, you know, um, negatively impacted by the actions of the REC and and the British Army and the EDR. So we'll have to look at it in the round. But I think for these young people who are sort of doing TikTok memes and making light of something they never experienced, I'd love to show them the sort of work that I did in the public record office. Where I spent day after day and also during lockdown I did a lot of this in my bedroom working remotely from home where I had to process uh, court and inquest records from the troubles and that involved reading first-hand accounts of victims yeah first-hand account of people who carried out um, certain actions but also photographs and I say the only equality truly is when someone's landing on a mortuary slab there's no you know hierarchy there every everybody on a mortuary slab is in the same position they're all dead they all leave loved ones behind and some of the things i saw when i worked in that job and it was hundreds of files i had to go through even talking about it now i can see some of the images floating around in my you know, like in front of me there's yep. there, seared into my brain if only some of these people could see the reality of what violence is uh you know the sort of pathetic pictures that i saw of people lying in alleyways with a gunshot to their head in the rain or somebody who'd been blown up in a bomb or somebody who'd been shot at close range with a sawn-off shotgun you know this is the reality of it this is where it boils down to the fact that it's not a protest against housing, uh, a lack of housing for young people in Dublin. It's more than just a protest against the Irish Shea border. You know, we can resolve these things politically. We don't have to go down the violence route or the fet- fetishization of violence. Yeah. Now, I know that I've written about violence, and I, you know, people might say, well, you know, people seem to be under this illusion that I've made a lot of money off writing loyalism. I certainly haven't. Um, I've done the book about the Tartans. I've done the book with Billy. But what I always wanted to know was what, what motivates people to do these sort of things. It's not the excuses they understand or, or sort of try and, and I know the people who are telling me their stories wanted the stories to be up there and, and, and in print so that younger generations could realize where the pitfalls were. And the same with the book with Billy. Billy wanted me to write a preface which stated that I didn't agree with anything that he did from a UVF perspective. And obviously that safeguarded me because I'm the messenger. I'm conveying a life experience. I think it's valid. and It's the same with Republican activists. I think it's valid that their stories are heard. But we can't just reduce it to a meme or a sort of celebration because ultimately... We have a bloody past, and I don't think people realise how bloody it was when when they have this distance between now and then.
1: Yeah, and, and in a way, I'm grateful that they don't because it's not nice. But on the other hand, listen, listen to those who went before you and temper what you're doing. Absolutely, I mean, there's stories, but they're not fairy tales. No, so, so they need to know that it's quite quite dark. But they're what what they're What they're trying to make light off is is quite dark and they need to understand that. So again, back to the gravitas.
2: Absolutely. So that brings on another question from Christopher. Um, He asks, when discussing legacy, I always come back to the case of Billy Hunter. To me, it seemed to expose the divide between those who think such people should be covering themselves in sackcloth and ashes and those who take a more pragmatic view that they had served their time and were entitled to make a living. Can such a gulf be bridged? So, people who don't know about Billy Hunter, do you want to talk about that or shall I give away? You explainer? go ahead. You go ahead. Well, Billy Hunter was a former UVF member who'd been sentenced to life in prison for the murder of two brothers, I think it was. Um, who had come back to Mount Vernon to play a card game. Um, Billy Hunter worked with these young men. Um and eventually he in in recent years, I think it was ten years ago, he was working in a local supermarket, and he made a comment to one of the delivery drivers in the supermarket about playing the sash on the radio, and um, there was calls for him to be sacked, and obviously in the in the newspapers, a whole sort of uh, debate went on about his past, and you know. C- c- Valid, I suppose. You know, giving people the context of what what he'd done in a pre, in a previous life, and the lives that he had taken. So, suppose what Christopher's asking there, and, and he's talked to me about this before. Offer is there is there a gulf there, and, and can it be bridged between you know people who feel that people like Billy Hunter, who eventually took his own life, um, in 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 the, in the wake of all this controversy. And I, 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 and I led the belief from people who knew him that he had severe mental health problems. Um, you know, and again, that, that comes back to something I've talked about often, that when we look at people who carried out acts of violence during the, the conflict, during the Troubles, a lot of them did end up with CPTSD and other mental health conditions. And you would have people who would say, well, rub it up them. It, you know, it, it's the least that they deserved. But, you know... We've talked earlier in the episode about transgenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Do we sort of break the cycle, or would we continue it? Do we do we make people wear sackcloth and ashes, or do we find room for them to integrate back into society?
1: Well, a lot of that, a lot of that particular one was media driven. They got a hold of a story in the way they wanted. We know what the media is like here, and they're very selective of who they go after. So Billy Hunter was an easy target to to churn up a few pages for them. Um. We, we could look at MLAs who have done similar or different things to him who are now sitting in government and we don't go after them on a daily basis. I mean that this, the story is not a, a preface, double murderer, an MLA, such and such. It, it's just, he's an MLA. So we can get over the hurdle with some people. We can get past their past as such. But for some others, we, we don't get past it and we keep going back and we keep hounding them. So, so the, the balance in this one is... We have a judicial system that we try to we try try to punish people, yes, but we also try and reconstruct them as individuals who so can come back into society and be a functioning part of it. So Billy Hunter went to jail, Billy Hunter done his time, so that, and then came out, and as far as I know, he didn't reoffend. And as you can see, take up a job and stuff. So was he a, a functioning part of society at that point? Had had he not made amends? Because Never really truly do that. But had had he done enough to be granted a second chance within society? Um, and if and if this if it's not the case, then we need to do away with prison because it's not working. Because that's that's basically what we're saying here. You've done a crime, you've been punished, but we're going to keep punishing you after the law has said that you've paid your 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 fee. Um so how far do we keep hunting these people? And the other thing is. This tends to be. I'm going to be a bit prickly here. Um, this te- I see. This tends to be aimed at certain individuals more than others, um, but it's always the Sunday papers that drag this up first, <laughs> and it's every single week. And they it, they just launch into people, um, and they don't they don't give anybody a break. Um, Billy Hunter, the families the families of his victims may say the he got what came to him. And I, I would have no argument with that whatsoever with them because they, they suffered and they lost. Um And to be... Uh, the fee can never be paid back as such. They, it can never be balanced with that family. Um But for the rest of society, they then jump on board with that and try and take ownership of somebody else's grief or issues and hound somebody. I think that's went too far. And in the case of Billy... To the, to the point where he took his own life to we hound everybody who's coming out of jail. Is that what we're going to do here in this country? Because it's got, that's got to take a while. Um, and and there'll be a... We'll never get past it. I mean, I used to say to people when, when I went away, I talked about the shankle. It's very hard not to know somebody who's served time somewhere. When you come from working class areas, because, yeah, that's where it happened, um, the, amount of, the amount of young men who went to jail... It may not be your brother or your dad or your your uncle, but it's probably your next door neighbour, or your dad's best friend, or the guy you used to work with or went to school with. In that kind of area, it, it was kind, it's kind of hard not to know somebody who's went the Um And when they come out, you know yourself. Some come out with issues because it, it happens. I mean, we 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 know stories about. Guys who walk in circles in their room, living rooms because that's what they used to do. They used to us the sales. Um, people who can't deal with the freedom. I know of a guy who went to a, a, a coffee shop um, after his release and the coffee shop served him as food and gave him plastic cutlery and he went absolutely apeshit because he said he had done his time and he had served his time and he had eaten the plastic cutlery for those years. He wanted normal cutlery. He was entitled to it. He was outside of prison. Obviously, the cafe served plastic called really everybody, but that was his trigger. Um, so prison does things to people uh, and then they come out. And if we're going to do that and then hound them once they are out, we'll, we'll never truly be able to move on. And as I said, I'm, I'm not expecting the victims to move on, other families. But the greater society, those outside of this, those who are not directly impacted by it, need to be looking at how we move forward with this. I mean, I don't, I don't think we should be painting a mural of, of Billy Hunter when he gets released up on a wall somewhere or having a Billy Hunter Memorial Day for him and but allow him to go to work and allow him to do a day's work allow him to try and move on with his life and, and if he's not reoffending and if he's paying his taxes and if he's doing no harm then we should be leaving people alone at that point
2: and Do you think unions politicians have sort of been net negligent in their l- the lack of support they've given to former loyalist prisoners? Whereas, yeah, because I mean, we've talked about this before and I think it's a valid point that, you know, Sinn Féin um, have done a brilliant job over the years of bringing their former activists along with them, giving them a place in politics or, you know, community activism and and sort of, it's basically, they've built it up from the ground themselves. Mm -hmm. Loyalism never really was given the room to do that and the majority Sort of representatives, the unionist politicians, the Ultra unionist party DUP, have never really brought them, brought these former paramilitaries in from the fold and tried to reintegrate them. So, can can you talk a wee bit about that, Sam, and what your experience is?
1: Um, basically, what we're talking about there is is, is the birth of the UDP and the PUP and why they had to exist because loyalism was talked to and not talked with by their politicians for, for a long time so the only way to get past that and Gusty and Cole noticed it was, let's do it ourselves uh, and that's when they started to formulate what what they were, who they were, and what they wanted and how to get it because they were told what they wanted they were told, well, we still are, I mean there's certain people out there who are still telling us what a prod is what a loyalist is and if you're not you're, you're such and such, I mean Lundy's the usual one but there's other words they're using now But but Gusty came along and thought, no, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have to actually do this for ourselves. So the likes of Hugh Smith, who had done a lot of work, um, brought his experience of that. And then the guys who came out of prison, who had seen what violence got them to and educated themselves, looked at things in a different way. And what they realised was, our community is struggling here and we're not getting the help we need. We're getting tidbits, we're getting breadcrumbs. We want the cake. This is how we're going to do it. And for a while, that was the way forward. Um, but it certainly hasn't been that way for a while. And we don't, there, there are unionist politicians out there who, I'm going to say look down their nose at past uh, loyalist prisoners. And looking down their nose is probably a nice way to put it, because some of them have told total disdain for them. Um, there are people who are on Twitter there who will be from the unionist community and who have not a nice word to say about any of these guys. Um, and go out of their way to be to be in their faces. We as a community are completely divided that way, as in we we didn't we didn't bring these guys out of prison and put them in the place in society where where we could sort of embrace them better, use them as well, because me, God, they come out with experience. We should be using that. But we don't, and our parties have struggled. Now there are the odd occasions, we've seen that in recent times, Pe- people who've stood for election for these parties who have had a more than um, unclean past, <laughs> who've, who've been involved in things, are are, are a bit accused of things. Um, and they, they've made it into these parties. So, But they tend to be tokens as opposed to anything else, um, depending on the area. Sometimes the parties know that they're not going to stand their own candidate in that area because they don't get received well. So they'll pick one from the area, that they think they can control and stand that person. But no, I, I don't think, as a as a unionist community and for our politicians, we haven't done enough to reintegrate our prisoners coming out and we certainly haven't given them the support that they require.
2: Well, I've got three more questions, I think, uh, before we round off. And this sort of flows on nicely from, from the points that uh, came out of, out of the last question. And Stephen Anderson, who is a big supporter of the podcast, he asks... The progress the union and find unionist unity of purpose, what is the most important conversation that unionism has to have among ourselves? So this will be directed towards you. How can any meaningful discussion be facilitated while political unionism is painfully absent from its core principles? Is the broader concept of the union itself fit for purpose in a post-Brexit Britain?
1: I think, that's what Stephen's asking there, it's a question that we've been asking for quite some time. Um You've mentioned Billy Hutchison there. I mean, Billy has been calling for a unionist convention for quite some time. And and it wasn't to amalgamate into one super party, but it was. they got on about their their daily business as a party, but on the things that they agreed on and the things that were core principles, as Stephen has said, was the things that they worked together on. Um, But that has fallen on deaf ears because usually, unless it's beneficial to to the other parties, they don't want to know about it. It's not bad... not that it's not beneficial to the community, it's just not beneficial to them. So why why would they bother? Um, I think the conversations we need to have are going to have to be um, quite frank and quite honest about where our loyalties lie and why they lie there because I think since um, just before Brexit, since Cameron onwards, um, well, to be honest, none of the real prime ministers in, in the last 20, 30 years I can remember have been quite friendly towards our, our cause um, we've always had to be careful how we do things. But from Brexit has started, I don't think we've been honest with ourselves. There's quite a f- few people who have seen where this was going up front and knew where we had end up with in a, in a post brexit society. And I think that's where we are. We are always the collateral. We're always the bit that can give away because to the Tories were nothing. I mean, we were less than dirt on their shoes. And I think we need to get to that point where they people realise that. I mean, people often say to me, if you don't like the Tories and you don't like that, and you don't like why why do you still want to be part of the union? I'm loyal to the, the principles of the union. I'm not loyal to the governments of the union. Um, they've been quite disappointing. But I also think that we need to be quite frank and honest about what we do in any eventuality. Um, people out there are totally, we can't discuss a border poll. I think we need to be. I think if we're not, we're remiss within our community about discussing it. And whether that's fighting one, winning one, or what happens if we actually lose one. Those conversations need to be had and they need to be honest and they need to be realistic about how they're going forward. I suppose people would like to say, you never want to talk about defeat because if you do that, then you open the door to it. I think if we don't talk about what would happen going forward, and when it does happen, we're going to be caught flat footed and our community is going to struggle even more because we're not going to be in a position to empower them to use whatever they need to use but they, there's things, steps in place before that. So we need to get together and discuss what unionism was and what it is now. What do we want from it going forward? So um, we, we talk about the past on this a lot. Um, and we talk about the present as well. Very rarely we talk about the future because it's not within our remit to do so because we're we're not, I think we're realistic. and we're not optimistic sometimes. Optimistic um, Meg. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, we, we are. We we. We, we sort of, I think I think if they want to bring us along to discuss what it was and where where it is at the minute, then we'll do that. But for going forward, that takes a different kettle of fish. But then, talk, Stephen, they're talking about uh, the purpose it was during the week. The, the Belfast Telegraph showed um, the Ulster Young Unionists that put a, a, a sort of a couple of pictures up and interviewed these young people. And the abuse they took was unbelievable. Yeah, you know. So, suppose what we need to do is is support those young people first. We need to, we talked about this with Michelle as well, during the week, we need to give our young people the tools to to use going forward because we're not going to be around forever. And uh, So we need to pass on those tools to those. But as, as what he said there, what do we need to do as unionists? The conversations need to start. And I, I did say to somebody during the week that we need to start these conversations again and promoting it. Um, and they said, well, you already are in what you're doing with the podcast. That's fair enough. But we're, we're not big enough to be doing everything. Other people need to be having these conversations and I would put it out there again as an invite, challenge, whatever let's start sitting down with people let's start looking about what options are available let's look at the past, let's look at the future and let see how we get from one to the other um, and Stephen has been quite vocal on this issue a few times that these conversations need to be had. I think there's a lot of us who are saying it but we're just not in the room that these conversations are going to be in and I think that's where where it needs to be. But we also need to be having these conversations in a way that we can we can get the information from the the meetings out to the people and let them know what's going on. Because we leave a vacuum outside, we might as well not be doing the meetings. We need to, we need to be bringing the
2: community with us. We need to be talking to them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's looking in from the outside. I suppose what I would say is, I suppose cool heads need to prevail, and we need to get rid of rhetoric. Um, And that will benefit all of society, no matter what direction it goes in, because I think you've made a really good point about the idea of a border poll and, you know, unionist reluctance to have a discussion about it. I think you might have described it as disaster planning at one stage. But it's that whole idea of going upstream, isn't it? To, To see what's going on upstream so that you can sort of plan for any eventuality and make the water cleaner. for for whatever your desire is for the future to be like and you know you can't just stick your fingers in your ears and hope it won't happen because that's not the way you sort of constructively plan for your community and I think maybe one thing that is lacking in unionism and always has and, and I suppose it's by the very nature of unionism which is Particularly over the last 60 years, it's always had to be on the defensive. Mm. I suppose that gives little room for creativity and articulating different ideas. So that's where my sympathy would lie with people who are trying to advocate a positive vision for unionism because there's often very little room to actually create that breathing space.
1: Yeah, and I think think we also need to accept that not everybody's going to be my type of unionist or loyalist. We need to to accept it. it's a broad church, and we need to accept that there's, there's other people's views that are quite as valid as what my view of it would be. And we need to be looking at them and talking with them and,
2: and moving it forward. Well, we've, um, had, I mean, we, we've had that before on the podcast where you know, one week you can be a guest can be being congratulated, or you can, you know, particularly when you went down to Ballymun and people are like, This is brilliant, this is what you know, we need to hear from loyalism. And then somebody like Mirror Holmes comes onto the podcast, and it's like, Oh, I can't believe you saying that, I can't believe you that's what he's articulating there is a valid part of unionist loyalist discourse that, that exists. Yeah. And, you know, I know he did receive some criticism. People felt he was making veiled sort of allusions to violence. I, I don't know what they expect him to do. They expect him to ignore the fact that there would be violence in the future, because ultimately what we've seen with any sort of constitutional transformation is that there's always a potential for violence after these transformations happen because you're always going to have people who aren't going to be happy with their lot and that often leads to armed resistance rebellion revolution you know it's not just in ireland that that's happened It's across across the world so you know as you say i, I suppose that's one of the, the it's one of the strengths and weaknesses of unionism and loyalism that there are a lot of different voices there's a, a variety of voices but often in times of crisis, you need to distill that variety of voices into a coherent narrative. Yeah. And that's always been the difficulty for people like yourself and, and the community, the loyalist unions community, when things like this are on potentially on the horizon. But you're you're being positive, you're saying, look, we need to talk about it. Doesn't mean we want it. We want to go out and advocate for the union. But we'll have to go out and advocate for it. We'll have to go out and sort of countenance the arguments that we're hearing, but oftentimes people don't want to even engage in that. No, I mean, and, and people who
1: don't like what Moore was saying that night being said, you got to listen to it. Uh, You don't have to agree with it, but it's, it's there. And it'd be remiss of us as well to promote the, the the loyalism that we sort of relate to as the only form of loyalism Mm -hmm. there is there at the moment. There's, there's other conversations being had and, Muir wasn't having a veiled threat. Me- 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 in no, no position to call anybody onto the streets for violence. It's not gonna yeah. work that way. You know, it, yeah. he was. he's in a position where he's commenting on something like we do. Um and we're in a society where we're being told that violence has a place and violence there because there's no other way is acceptable. You know what I mean? That that's why we need to be careful on, on on every side how we how we promote the past. Because if we tell people there was no other way and violence was the only way to get what they wanted, we're just setting ourselves up for a fall in the future because young lads are going to come and say, "Well, there is no other way, so let's get on with it." Um, and we need to be—we need to be nulling that now. We need to be telling them that there is another way, uh, and that no other way is not an option. It's not—it's not a—it's not, not a valid response to questions.
2: Absolutely. Well, just just a final question, and it comes from our our good friend and all-round nice chap, Dougie Jamieson. Oh, Dougie! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doesn't like the fact doesn't like the fact that I like heavy metal. He he, he needles me on that. But he's he's a nice he's nice in person. Yeah. So yeah, good good lad. Um Doogie asks In all your interviews for Shrapnel, have you thought that the overall political discourse has improved, or is it nothing but the same old story?
1: <sighs> Politics has improved. And and wasn't to say the silence of the guns is our mandate. It it has the guns have been mostly silent, and for Northern Ireland over the last half century, that's pretty good for us. Um, is it broken down at the moment? Yes, um, but it's not the same old story just quite yet. But we we've, we're at a, we are at a place now where we're at a, a watershed moment as such. We could either fix what we've got, or we need to find another way quickly because if we don't stagnation is just going to drive us backwards it really is
2: i think the interesting thing for me in this question is it comes back to maybe what we're trying to do mm-hmm. and how you and me sam we're not the sort of guys who like to give ourselves pats on the back We have imposter syndrome up to the sort of you know overflowing basically <laughs> yeah. um and often we'll come off these episodes and sort of, I know, I know you always say to me, well, you know, you've got the PhD, but let me, let me tell you, that doesn't make me feel any more legitimate as a spokesperson or a commentator, um, you know, in a, in a society where commentators are everywhere and sort of wheeled out, you know, without very little insight. But I think we have created a space on shrapnel where we can have conversations we're not railroading people into saying things we're not sort of setting two diametrically opposed sensationalist angles against each other and hey look you know obviously the people of northern ireland do like that formula because that's why so many people buy into certain tv programs and radio shows that do sort of have that structure and that's that's totally valid but you know i think to move things forward Mm -hmm. We need to have uh, discussions like this. And that's not us saying that we're brilliant or the best, but I think we're contributing something to making the political discourse, societal discourse uh, more positive. And, you know, I think, you know, somebody also asked about how we emotionally prepare for interviews, particularly ones like Paul Wilson or... You know, Robert Gibson and there'd be more of those types of interviews in the future um, and you've spoken uh, in a similar vein this morning about the impact of violence on, on your life and how it affected you with the Schenkel bombing. But it's given people the room to talk like that. It's given people who've got the, the first hand experience of it to talk about it rather than you know, just solely concentrating on people who have agendas or want to push things in a certain direction. I think we're, you know, somebody, a friend, colleague there recently said to me, you know, you guys are probably ahead of the curve slightly. And I sort of said, ah, don't be ridiculous. But when I went home and thought about it, I thought sometimes you have to take the credit that you're you're being offered, put it in your back pocket and remember that you're doing a good job. And I think, you know what I'd like to see in the future, aside from the guests who've all been fantastic, is to do more of these sort of fragment episodes. Yeah, get people to ask us questions, put the onus on us to talk more because we're we're good listeners. We we listen to people. We don't interrogate them. We, we try to give them the sort of room to to develop their their narrative. I know I can meander a wee bit when I'm asking questions, but that, that's me trying to figure out what, what is careful, what is, what is safe to say and what is not safe to say. Yeah. So buy myself time, which is, I think, the responsible thing for anyone to do in this day and age. But um, I think I'd like to do more of these where, you know, we can sort of put our pennies worth forward and sort of say what we think or what we feel. So, you know, in conclusion for today's episode, I would say to people, we'll do this again. Might be in a couple of weeks, might be in a month, but to give us time to research the questions and give proper answers and, and think about how we structure the the episode, email your questions to ShrapnelPodcast at gmail.com or message us on social media, or just come up to us in the street and ask us. But you know, obviously introduce yourself first. Don't be uh, don't be just walking up to me in the in the park when I'm with my daughter, like the guy in the waterworks did a couple of years ago, and asking yeah. me. Was I Gareth Mulvenna? And did I write about loyalism? So,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, answer that question. It's, yeah. it's, up there, it's up there along with what primary school do you go to? And what's the letter that comes before I in the alphabet? It's H, Sam. Oh, sorry. Sorry, 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 yeah. sorry it's H. H. H or H. Either way you want to <laughs> go. But yeah, no, it's, we, we, we don't, we don't, not that we don't like um, plaudits. They're nice, but we don't they don't sit comfortably with us, do they? No. We, we we sort of I don't know about you, but I shiver a bit when somebody says something nice to me. I'm like, oh, just just give me the just give me the slap now. You're you're buttering me up for something, and they don't, and you're like, okay. So we've got better at taking them. Um, and I suppose we need to embrace the, the the good feedback that we get because if shrapnel's to go anywhere, it needs to grow, and we need to be building on that. So. I, I have developed a way of taking the the, the praise, but shrapnel t- getting the praise is not me. That's the way yeah. I'm sort of mentally going with this. It's it, it's not what I do. It's what shrapnel does. It's what the package puts out there. Um, so much so I think we've got a couple of really interesting bits coming up in the next couple of months between now and March. And Absolutely. We'll, yeah. We'll let everybody know once once they're finalizing what's once, once they're cemented in what we're doing. Um, but it's certainly looking very promising for the pod. Um, but yeah, it's it's got it's un- oh, Imposter syndrome, Jesus. We could do a whole episode on that.
2: Maybe. Well, we could do that
1: eventually. Yeah, just two a lads shooting the breeze here. Like as far as I can see today. Well,
2: I'm not old. You can. Well, call you're yourself old. I'm, I'm only forty. I, I feel old We're we're both in our forties, but we're at different ends of the spectrum. And that's what yeah. um. I hello and some of us carried it well. I suppose some of the aids like fine wine here. Yeah, well, now you're talking about yourself.
1: Now that we're slipping into the ego. Okay. <laughs> uh, but no, yeah. It, thanks, everybody, who put the questions in. We took the time to write them and, and send them into us because when we, we, we do this, we do this fishing expedition. you sort of worried that nobody's going to ask you a question. You're like, nobody's really listening. Nobody really wants to interact with us. Um, but then the questions come in. So we've still got extra ones there. There are, there are ones we didn't tackle today that we'll come back to um, at a later date. And there's other ones there. That we think are going to be relevant in an upcoming pods or one or two of them so we'll keep it that way um but yeah thanks for listening and thanks for for asking the questions